And as they're making their way out, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. That last song we sang reminded you of what psalm? 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, I've been reading, uh, Karen and I have been reading the CSB, and this last week I read Psalm 23, and, I, and there were several interesting differences, but the very first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need, uh, put it in, in the positive, and, and I, I looked it up, uh, I'm a little better at Greek than I'm at Hebrew uh, at this stage of things, and I'm sounded like it was, it was the right translation. Uh, so uh, that might be something for you to take a look at. But also that song is a great introduction to Nehemiah. I introduced last week that Nehemiah is fundamentally a shepherd. He is a leader because he wanted to shepherd his people. God called him to shepherd his people. Therefore, he had to, he had to take some leadership uh, as a result. And, and that really is what this book is about. There is, uh, if you are holding a Bible or even your phone, you are holding the greatest piece of literature ever written. And that's not just a pastor saying that. That is a widely considered to be true, even for people who are believers, even for people who actually hate God, even for people who would look at this and say, you know, the whole thing is just a big fairy tale, but you know what? It's really written well. It's a great piece of literature. They respect it. Now, we all know there are difficult sections in the Bible. Come upon those? Some really hard ones. But when the Bible tells a story, it really tells a story. It, it draws you in. And I think the Esther story is, is a prime example. The, the twists and turns in her story are absolutely legendary. The story repeatedly takes you to the edge of disaster only to save all the heroes at the very last possible moment. It happens again and again in that story. Now, the eternal truths of God's sovereignty drip off of every page, but we learn about God and his sovereignty through the compelling story. Same is true here in Nehemiah. Chapter 4 finds Nehemiah and the people he is shepherding at one of their lowest moments. And as the story unfolds, the level of persecution ramps up with each step. It starts with anger. It escalates all the way to a threat of murder. And as we'll see here, the line between the, the good guys and the bad guys clearly drawn. I mean, you see, you see the black hats, you know, in the old westerns and, and the white hat guys. Uh, and the drama is intense. It's a really well-told story, but it's more than just a story. It's one more record of God's faithfulness, and in this case, God's faithfulness is teaching us how to steward persecution. I, I love the word stewardship. I think you should also love the word stewardship because a steward is simply a manager of something that has been given to you. You know, if you are cooking fries at McDonald's, you, you are the steward of, of, that, of that fry area, right? You, you're given that responsibility, and you're supposed to do it well as unto the Lord. That's the dominion mandate. We talked about that in Genesis and, and in Revelation as we got into the uh, they shall reign forever and ever. That, that's all of us, all believers, will reign forever and ever. That, I believe, is the dominion mandate in the book of Revelation that will continue for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So you will always be a steward for all eternity. So why not begin now 
That's the dominion mandate. We can use every ounce of his creation for good or for evil. But stewardship is not just about managing things like our money and our families. Stewardship is managing everything that God sends our way, and persecution is just one of those examples. Now, if you were with us in the Revelation series, there was a lot of talk about or implied about persecution because it's everywhere. It just The whole book is about persecution, but uh, Revelation is certainly not alone in that regard. Among other things, the, the book prepares the church for what is coming, uh, which is another reason how the Esther story is similar to Nehemiah because they're both, Esther is all about persecution, Nehemiah is partly about persecution, but both are wrapped up in these compelling stories. So I encourage you to follow along as I read this chapter, and then we'll see how they respond to this extreme persecution. You should remember from last week, Sanballat. He, he, he's right at the very beginning here. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked, I looked and arose, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Where our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on their work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders who had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, 
The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and a servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. The first thing we see in the story are the tactics that the enemies use, the tactics of persecution. The very first one we see is anger. Right out of the gates, Sanballat heard, we are building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged. Sanballat is the chief black hat guy. He's the the chief instigator. His name is mentioned ten times in four chapters. You see a couple, a little repetition of other guys, but but he's the number one guy. uh, But verse 7 sums up the vast number of enemies. Look at that again. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. So it's a long list of, of names and, and nations there, and they're representing peoples that collectively completely surrounded Jerusalem on every side. So, so think about, you know, here they are in their town, and it's north, south, east, and west. They're completely surrounded by all of their chief enemies. And you know, that has always been the case with Jerusalem. Ever since Israel entered the Promised Land in 1400 B.C., her enemies have been trying to destroy her. And of course, they eventually did, at least the city. The Assyrians defeated the the northern king of Israel in 721 B.C., and they were all taken captive, and they became what was known as the the ten lost tribes of Israel. Uh, They they were never regathered in the same way uh, as Judah was. And then in the southern kingdom of Judah, the Babylonians uh, destroyed that city in 597 B.C., almost 120 years later, burned down the walls, right, which leads us to the book of Nehemiah and why uh, Nehemiah needed to go help rebuild the walls. It all goes back to Babylon. And today, even, the nations surrounding Israel still want to see her wiped off the map. Some of you know a little bit of history. Uh, Remember the the Six-Day War in 1967 resulted in an overwhelming victory for Israel. All the surrounding Arab nations uh, attacked Israel all at once. And I don't know the the exact details and how it happened, but Israel was able to take air superiority very, very early and destroyed almost all the airfields. And and that was, uh, humanly speaking at least, why that was only, it's called the Six-Day War because it only lasted uh, for six days. But then six years later, uh, 1973, it was the Yom Kippur War, which was the last full-scale war between the surrounding nations, same idea, all around them, and the small nation of Israel. And the Arabs launched a surprise attack. I mean, they were, they were well uh, prepared, and, and Israel no longer had air superiority because the, the, the weapons now is, are coming in from Russia to, to the Arab nation, so they're really well prepared, and they attacked them on what day? Yom Kippur. That's why it's called the Yom Kippur War on the holiest 
the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the nation of Israel. If the situation were uh, switched, it would be like Israel attacking an Arab nation on the first day of Ramadan, their, their holiest day, the beginning of the holy days. So Israel narrowly squeaked out of victory in that war, but her enemies have not stopped wanting her to come to complete annihilation. In fact, here is a, a map. You can't really see what's happening there of, of the forces, but uh, I'm going to blow up the, the key there to show you that uh, Israel had 177 tanks versus 1,400 tanks, and they had 44 artillery units versus 930, and that was just coming uh, from Syria. So they were vastly outnumbered, uh, so obviously the Lord was involved in protecting them as well. But as we've seen here in our story, all persecution begins with anger and hatred. And if you have not had people angry at you because of your beliefs, one of two things are probably true. You haven't lived long enough, um, or maybe they don't know you're a Christian, so they don't care, so they're, they're, they're not hassling you. And, and, and you can't avoid it if you want. Paul, Paul wrote, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, finish it with me, will be persecuted. So, you see how easy it is, though? You keep your faith under wraps, they'll leave you alone, and you won't be persecuted. But we also know that this is the reason why uh, at the end of the, uh, end of the world, uh, billions of people will receive the mark of the beast because they've denied Christ. Now, I'm not saying every time you, you fail to witness fully to the Lord that you're denying Christ. Uh, that's some kind of eternal destiny of yours. But I am saying that, that uh, once you deny Christ in that sense, it, it's done for. So, so we are to be uh, practicing bearing witness for the Lord. Uh, but the fact is, persecution at every level, what's sometimes called bloody persecution, which is literally... Uh, harming you physically all the way to the point of martyrdom versus what's called soft persecution. At every level, it tends to work because you, you, you don't have to have your head cut off to know what persecution feels like. But if someone is angry at you because of your beliefs, here, here's an encouragement to you. Make sure they're mad at you because of your beliefs and not your brash personality, right? Sometimes we get in the way of the message, and, and Paul is very clear. Uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarreled, but, but gentle, uh, able to teach, gently instructing those uh, so you can help them escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. So be kind, but also steadfast and immovable in your faith. Second tactic we see clearly in this story is propaganda. Look at verse 2 again. This volley, this barrage of propaganda. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And then a little bit later, uh, uh, Sanballat's given these, and then, uh, uh, forget the name of the next guy, he, he jumps in and says, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That one, I, I think, was an extra little stab, wasn't it? Because a fox, a, a good-sized fox, weighs about 15 pounds. So this little tiny fox jumping on the wall is supposed to bring the whole thing crashing down. 
it was, uh, it says they were jeering at them. This was propaganda in its fullest sense. And by the way, this is 2,500-year-old propaganda. Uh, and just like it does today, 2,500 years ago, it worked. It worked. It has always worked. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of details uh, here, but we've all experienced the impact of massive propaganda. You know, if I went down into that rabbit hole, it would go to the center of the earth, right? Uh, all the ways that, that we, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we've experienced it, the extreme impact of extreme propaganda, not only in our own country, but all, all throughout the world in the last several years. Now, we had an idea that extreme bias was out there. We we're very clear of that, but most of us, myself included, were not aware of the depth of the extreme of the coordinated propaganda machine. It has created armies of minions and blind followers, but it has also revealed its ugly head, so hopefully, we, as a result, we can recognize it a little bit quicker uh, and easier than we did before. But notice how, in this story, persecution grew in intensity. First anger, then propaganda. When the enemy was not getting their intended result, uh, there were threats of violence. Verse 8. And they all plied together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, were these just mere threats of violence? Do we see any evidence in the story that they thought it was more than just a mild threat of violence? It's all over the story, isn't it? Nehemiah commanded every person building the wall to strap a sword to his side. Others, half of them, it says, were stood nearby holding spears, shields, bows, and, and even coats of mail. I mean, I, I don't see that very often in Scripture, the, this description of, of coats of mail, armor. Still, others were stationed at strategic parts, right? Because Nehemiah says it's large, the wall, we're so spread out, and there, there's going to be trumpets stationed here. And if there's, the battle starts over here, the trumpet will sound, you run to that section. If the trumpet, the battle's over here, you run to that section. So they were uh, very, very prepared uh, for what was coming. So it was not a threat of violence. It was a promise of violence. All the people expected it, which is why they were so well prepared. Excuse me, just take a moment here and make sure again it's okay. Everybody good? Just not good. You're good. Okay, all right. Yep. I know it's, it's hard for Dennis to turn and, and get moving, so I'll, I'll let you guys. Thank you. Um, good. Yeah, no rush. No rush. Just want to make sure you're all right. So the uh, people were uh, very well prepared, and that is obvious in the story. And then we see the result of persecution. Uh, what did anger and propaganda and threats of violence do to them? Well, it resulted in fear, discouragement, in weariness. The people uh, experienced all those things. Verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. You see what happened there? They gave up. They were done. I mean, it's just, it's too overwhelming. Yeah, yes, they experienced some progress. They, they rebuilt it to half the, I mean, it wasn't this tall. I mean, we're talking about massive walls here. Uh, so it wasn't like, 
a little fence, and now it's uh, uh, this going to be this high. Uh, so they made great progress, but they were absolutely fearful, absolutely discouraged. Their enemies were too strong. They were done. And remember this. Your enemy doesn't have to kill you. Your enemy only needs to control you. Sanbal and company, it would appear anyway, their goal was not genocide. They didn't want to wipe out every last man, woman, and child in, in Jerusalem. Uh, but they are more than willing to take a few lives to accomplish their goal, to keep the wall from being built. And it worked. They, they, they'd given up. I mean, if you would stop the story right then, the wall is half built, and that, that is literally the end of the story. They didn't have to kill anyone to discourage them from building. They controlled the Jews without killing the Jews. Now, of course, throughout the world, there will always be enemies who are engaging in genocide, who really do want every man, woman, child to be, to be wiped out. Uh, but fundamentally, persecution is all about control. Don't share your faith. Don't you dare tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I don't want to hear any of your homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic beliefs. I don't want to hear any of that. Or the latest one, child trafficking is just a, a QAnon theory, right? You've probably heard that this last week. Disgusting. If you obey your persecutors, they'll leave you alone. If you come under, if you do what they want, they won't persecute you. And that's the true source of their power. They want to control you in order to maintain their beliefs, in order to maintain their lifestyles. They want you to toe the line and keep your mouth shut. And everything will be hunky-dory. Even this classic painting of Christians being fed to the lions in the first century fundamentally was propaganda. Now, propaganda of the most brutal, brutal type and of the most public type, but, but they, they didn't have to kill all Christians. They just killed some Christians in order to control all Christians. It's all about control. So the question is, who is in control? Now, in Nehemiah's case, it was the government, specifically uh, the government of all of the surrounding nations. The, these were all... Uh, nations that likewise were under the, the king, the Medes and Persians. They were their provinces. They, they had their own governors and, and, and a sense of sovereignty, but they were clearly under uh, the king of the, of the Medes and Persians. But um, it's clearly government in that case. And I don't know if you've seen this T-shirt around social media, um, which, you know, I'm taking orders, 1999 really soft cotton uh, T-shirts. Um, now, we could go down a rabbit hole, right? Persecution, conspiracy, corruption. It's all there. It's all there. We could talk about it forever and ever. And, and, and some people would like me to talk about this sort of thing every single week. Hey, do you hear what's going on? It's really bad. And, and do you hear this latest thing? And, and this guy on this podcast and this show. And, and, and I listen to podcasts. Uh, so, so I get that. We have to be careful. Romans 14 teaches us that God ordains every governing authority, every last one. 
Yet also in Romans 14 and, and other places, it clearly tells us that the government was ordained for good, and if the government is all about evil and wanting us to do evil, we are not just allowed to disobey, we are commanded to disobey that evil. As we saw in Revelation, what's going to happen at the end? Who's in control? Governments all throughout the world colluding and conspiring with one another, and especially colluding and, and uh, uh, conspiring with the Antichrist, right? So at the end of the day, yes, government, but fundamentally it's Satan who is deceiving and ruling the nations. And why does he deceive them? So that he can control them. It's all about control. So how do we respond to persecution? Number one, expect it. Know that persecution is here. Know that if the Lord tarries, it will increase. Know that if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will eventually be persecuted. And part of that expectation is knowing the tactics. Anger, propaganda, threats of violence, and, and it just escalates. It's always the same pattern. It's always leading to trying to control us. And if you find yourself becoming, as they were, fearful and discouraged and weary, no, first of all, that's okay, right? I mean, if you're being persecuted, you're going to experience some of that. It's not all a sinful reaction, right? Uh, now, it, it can get to that point. If you just continue uh, to, to lack faith, if you're not calling to mind uh, the truths, uh, then it can lead to that. But, but, but of course, it, it's difficult. No one's going to go through extreme persecution without any fear, discouragement, or weariness. But if you're aware of the tactics and you're, you're, you're uh, following what, the, Lord, what the, the Bible teaches, you're more likely to respond in faith than you are in fear. Secondly, we see very clear... In this story, pray. Remember I've said there are ten prayers in the book of Nehemiah. We've already seen two of them. And in this chapter alone, there are two more. Uh, verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders and then verse 9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, out of those two prayers in this, this chapter, it, does one of them strike you as a little more harsh than the others? Just a little bit, right? The, the, the first one. Uh, we have to be very careful here because this is what theologians call an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer. It's in the Psalms. Uh, the prophets do this. Somewhat, they're not, really, they're not really praying these things, they're prophesying these things. And, and you, you see that, if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, just chat, sometimes 10, 20 chapters in a row is this very thing. Uh, God gave uh, his people over to their enemies, and then God says, you know what? Because you did that to my people, now I'm going to bring vengeance upon you. Chapter after chapter after chapter. So, so an imprecatory prophesy, prophecy, and here we have an imprecatory prayer. Bring them down. Now, such prayers, they're in the Bible, and they're good in the sense that, that God's glory and God's honor are at stake, and they're, they're recognizing that, uh, that, that fundamentally 
hatred of the Jews is hatred against God, but we have to ask ourselves how prayers like this align with Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even though they are part, imprecatory prayers are part of God's inspired, God's inerrant word, I have never prayed an imprecatory psalm in my entire prayer in my entire life, nor do I ever intend to pray an imprecatory prayer, neither should you. Because we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Now, of course, that's impossible. That's the point. That's the point. God calls us to the impossible because we must depend in desperation upon him. And also remember that vengeance belongs not to us. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Thirdly, call to mind God's sovereign power. What matters is the attitude and the content of our prayer. So, so we saw this imprecatory prayer. That's a really important uh, content to be aware of that we're not going to engage in, in. But nevertheless, Nehemiah repeatedly demonstrated theologically rich prayers. Chapter 1, this beautiful, long prayer of repentance and faith and exaltation of who God is and what he has done. And in this chapter, he calls to mind God's sovereign power. And by the way, I'm using that, that phrase specifically, call to mind. If you're here last week, remember Lamentations 3, chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way almost through chapter 3 of Lamentations. Lament and sadness, tears and sadness. And then he gets toward the end of it and says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So in the midst of his lament, he calls to mind God's eternal truths. This is what, this is what uh, Nehemiah is doing in chapter, uh, verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Oh, really? Nations on every side uh, ready to kill us, to take us down. Do not be afraid of them. R- really, Nehemiah? He calls to mind, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Just a quick summary, right? It's just summarizing all that God is and what he has done for them. And because if you remember the Lord who is great and awesome, you will fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And by the way, God is going to fight for us. By the way, this is exactly how the disciples prayed when they were persecuted. Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So why the the disciples prayed right here? Because they were being persecuted, but their prayer recognized that it was fundamental the nations raging against whom? Against God. You know, it, it, it wasn't them fundamentally. They hated the Jews because they hated God. By the way, that's true of of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, right? When they're, this is what they're talking about, which sounds sort of rough that the religious leaders hated God. They, they did. They did. They're, they're the, the true God. They loved their idea of who God was, but they, they hated the true God, especially his son. And the disciples also knew that no one was more fierce, fiercely persecuted than whom? 
than Jesus. Nobody. And how did he respond? Remember the remember when he we put a sword on his side? Remember that? And, and a coat of mail over his robe. You remember that? This is Matthew uh, somewhere, if I remember. You remember that? Of course not. He was the most gentle. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. Nobody endured more fierce persecution, bloody persecution, than the Lord Jesus. They knew it. He was their model in all things. And then finally, prepare, work, and defend. We see in the story the Jews who were building the wall did all these things. They are prepared to defend themselves against violence by doing what? Returning violence, right? So they're they're ready to go. So does this mean that we should be armed to the teeth, ready to annihilate anyone who threatens us? Now, I got to pick on on Scott Niprath for a minute because Scott was sitting about here when I asked that. It's a rhetorical question. Thank you for not answering. And he says, yes. Uh, we are to annihilate, and, and I know Scott really well, but in that moment, you know, he wasn't winking at me or smiling, so <laughs> I don't want to call him out. We had a great conversation afterwards. I said, I'm going to pick on you, uh, second service, because, because it illustrates the point. I wasn't sure if Scott meant, yes, we may arm ourselves versus we must arm ourselves. Do you see the difference? One is, yes, we're, we're allowed to do that, and there, there's an armed citizenry is a good thing. It prevents tyranny. It can prevent tyranny, but it doesn't mean that we must, that we're commanded to arm ourselves to the teeth. So it's a really important uh, uh, distinction there. Um, but their military readiness, first of all, um, the Jews had permission from whom? Fr- from the government, from the chief government, from the Medes and the Persians. Remember, uh, uh, Nehemiah said, hey, can I have a letter that says I get all the wood and supplies I want? Sure, sure, I'll write you that letter. Oh, can I also have a letter that says um, we need protection from all the surrounding nations? <laughs> that wasn't going so well, was it? Sure, I'll write you that letter. And by the way, Nehemiah, I'm going to send you with, with an army uh, to make sure that you get there okay. So they weren't, again, they weren't their own sovereign nation, but they, they were acting under the king's authority. So they had every right governmentally, to protect themselves and defend themselves, yes, even with violent force. They were ready to defend themselves, but more importantly, they were busy doing the Lord's work. And what was the Lord's work for them right now? Building a wall. Nehemiah, God called Nehemiah to get the wall built. God called Nehemiah to shepherd his people so that the wall could be built. So at at least during this stage of of Israel's history, their following and doing the Lord's work was about building the wall. And that's what I submit to you is the most important thing that you and I can do to prepare ourselves for persecution is just do the Lord's work. Live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Do his work. And I love, uh, let me go back and look at verse 9 again. And we prayed to our God, and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now, hang on a minute. If they prayed to God, why do you need a guard? God is sovereign. God will fight for them, right? Why do you have both? That's the beauty of it. And and you see that all all throughout Scripture. Uh, Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that we're passive, that we do nothing, just the opposite, 
right? So it, sort of even in our evangelism. God is sovereign over who is saved. Uh, that's, why, that's why we witness. That's why we share. Because God will bring millions, hundreds of millions, billions to him. Uh, and we're, he's just asking us to engage in that. So, so both things are, are always true. So set a guard. What do I mean? Well, guard yourself. Guard your family. No question. Be prepared. Know the tactics of the enemy. But while you are guarding, do not let guarding be the Lord's work. Do you see? Do the Lord's work. Uh, do, do what he has called you to do. Live a guy life in Christ Jesus. And while you're doing that, yes, also set a guard. It's okay. It's okay to protect yourself, uh, to defend yourself. But that's not, that's not your main work. Your main work is to do the Lord's will. It reminds me of uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and hope. And most of you probably know that's ripped out of context horribly. Usually uh, the, the, the background here is, is so relevant because this is written from Jeremiah to Babylon. They're just beginning the seven years of captivity in Babylon. So this is all after the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem had just happened, right? And you say, oh, they're prospering them. The Lord's plan is to prosper them. Wait a minute. <laughs> Most of them are dead. Few of them are, are in captivity. What do you mean prosper? Well, a few verses earlier it says, go to Babylon. Build houses. Plant gardens. Take wives and, uh, for yourself. Pray for the welfare of the city because in its, its welfare, in, in its, when it is, is blessed, you will also be blessed. So they were told to do it. Do the Lord's work. Just be busy following the Lord, even in the middle of the worst persecution you've ever experienced, and trust that I'm working things out. And, and, I, and I love that because also the very beginning of the seven years of, 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 of captivity, the promise of absolute deliverance would come. And that's the hope we need to inject in our own persecution, whether it gets worse very soon or not, uh, that there's hope. I, I keep saying it works, it works, persecution works, but fundamentally it will not work, right? Did it work when the disciples prayed uh, because they're being persecuted? Did, did, did that work? Did, did they stop them from sharing? Of course not. And if it had quote-unquote worked, none of us would be standing here because persecution spread the gospel all throughout the Roman world. So yes, it works temporarily, but ultimately it cannot succeed. So how do you know if you're preparing for persecution? Question. Are you joyfully obeying the Lord today more than you were five years ago? Then you are preparing for persecution. Do you hold out your hand with gratitude to receive whatever God gives you as a steward, even hard things, then you are stewarding persecution. You are, you are preparing for it. Are you more deeply abiding in Jesus and have hope in his glorious return in eternal life? Then, thankfully, you are preparing for persecution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your 
wonderful, inspired record that reminds us of the ebbs and flows of history. How hard it was reminds us of how hard it will be. Even worse, so much worse than anything we've read. Yet, you were on your throne. In fact, uh, uh, from the throne of God and the Lamb, uh, the river of the water of life will, will come in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be only focusing on you. You are our shepherd, and we have everything we need. That's true in eternity. It's true today. But we need your help to call it to mind each day. In Jesus' name, amen.